Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 232 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday morning, February 9th, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Well, Steve, we have electricity at our homes. Congratulations. We live it. We, we, we're back to living in sort of a first world city. Uh, if, if you don't follow Steve on Twitter, if you do follow Steve on Twitter, you definitely know about this. By the way, I, I like, by the way, how you threw me under the bus with the provost. <laughs> Wait, I did? Yeah. I'm at, the, I'm, tell. I'm at the faculty council executive committee meeting on Monday with like with the provost, with the president of the university. Oh, about the electricity deal? Yeah. <laughs> did she make a joke? Yes. <laughs> I, I told the provost at uh, a meeting recently she was worried about, you know, so context, uh, Austin lost electricity in a big way due to an unbelievable ice storm that really not, just- Not that unbelievable. Well, it was, it was unbelievable in the sense that it had a catastrophic well, effect yes. on the tree canopy in our city because- True. Austin has a lot of live oaks, which keep all their leaves in the winter. So when an ice storm comes through, um, these trees pick up thousands of pounds of ice. And it, it's really, it's awful. Yes. It's really sad. True. So anyways, um, in the, you know, somebody's got to be last to get the power back on. So it was and us. it was our turn. So, so we lost power, what, like 4 a.m. Wednesday morning last week, right? And Overnight we got on back, Tuesday. And yeah, we, we got, got back like 5 p.m. Tuesday. Yeah, it was a long week. Um, 133 hours, but who's counting? So yeah, I had said to the provost that I, she asked, like, you know, what are you are you, are you agitating about? I said I don't have to because I live right next to Steve, and Steve is definitely going to do more agitating than I would have. <laughs> and uh, listeners, am I right? I'm right, right? So apparently, she passed that on to you. Well, so, so uh, <laughs> I, I think her her larger point, which she was using that to illustrate, was that sometimes it is better to have non-administrative members of the faculty agitating on Twitter than administrative members of the faculty. Ah, so she implicitly approved that I was not actually on Twitter <laughs> blasting the city. Well, I don't know. So in that, I don't think that the point was made in the specific context of the energy issue. That is really funny. But rather a, a broader point about sort of things that I can tweet that she can't. <laughs> you know, she ain't wrong. Um, Steve, that's a service. That's yet another service you performed in the university. So that's how I. That's how I took it. I'm not sure that's how she meant it. <laughs> I was going to say, did she mean to encourage? All <laughs> oh, right, so. So, so it was, it, it was only, is it possible to further encourage you? I don't know. I mean, it was it was only later in the meeting that President Hartzell referred to the you know the difference between the you know the university sending a tweet and me sending a tweet and how he's much more worried about the the university Twitter account. Well, it's true. It is true. <laughs> that makes sense. That is hilarious. But I just want to say that I don't know how I feel about the fact that my Twitter usage has now become the subject of discussion among university administrators. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, are you surprised? Come no. on. No. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but so yeah, so you and I were both pretty angry all week. Yeah, it was no fun. No. All right, but we're but back. We, but we have power. So, so yeah. it, people. And it actually, yeah. the worst part, it disrupted our ability to say. be a weekly podcast. So, this is actually the dirty little secret. I actually sabotaged the power on our block <laughs> because you're trying to win the bet. I'm trying to win the bet. <laughs> that actually explains a lot, right? Like, did the, the electricians, when they got to your backyard, the uh, Austin Energy people find, like, this wire's been cut. This was not a fallen tree branch. I can neither confirm nor deny. Although, although there are, they, 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 boy, did they, did they go after our trees? Oh man, did they? Well, can't say they were wrong. No, turns out, but, right? Yeah. Shockingly, there's something they should have done like years ago. Exactly. All right. So, uh, turning to national security law, we have a bunch of things to talk about today. Um, let's see. In the realm of great power competition, we can have a bucket of topics there. Um, what do we got, Steve? We got to talk about the balloon. Balloon law time. You knew it was coming. That We were so excited uh, last week to talk about this. It's still timely. 
So we'll do a balloon loss segment. We were excited uh, to talk about this. I thought we were sort of horrified. To talk I think about we were excited. Come okay. on, the, the jokes write themselves. Well, uh, unfortunately, they've all already basically been made. Mm. The puns have been been made. Can you believe though that President Biden didn't mention the balloon in the State of the Union? Uh, I, I, I did. I will tell you right now, in, in case this is the the beginning of a series of questions like that, I did not watch the State of the <laughs> Union. I was actually flying during the State. Of the, so, so um, you know the 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 DC the National Airport to Austin nonstop on Southwest, right? There's one yeah, yeah, day, yeah, the, like five thirty. Right, you've been on that flight. I'm on oh, that yeah. flight. You Everyone's see, on that flight. You always see our, our representatives yep. and senators. It's a great flight. It's always full. Yeah, right. You're on that. So new 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 uh, lesson, right? Hmm. Best time to take that flight is during the State of the Union. Oh yeah, you're right. Was it was it actually pretty empty? Empty. Oh my god, that flight's always packed. 176 seats on the plane, 65 passengers. Wow, wow, that really had an impact. I know. Makes sense. Um, it's, a, it's it's a it's a political flight, and That's the politicos really were all occupied. Well, it's kind of like I, we need a better name for it because the one that was the uh, Austin to San Jose back and forth is the Nerdbird. Mm. Um, what what is the uh, DCA to AUS flight? So, all right, listeners, you have a you have a you have a uh, you have you have a task. Come up with a nickname for the 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 one nonstop a day from National to Austin. Yeah. Try, try to keep it clean. All right, uh, we got uh, the, the Cancun escape escape hatch. That's the that's the wrong direction. That one goes that one goes south well, from here. No, DC to Austin is the, the right. Is, is, you're, you're, you're heading it's the right in, way. Heading that way. Um, okay, so uh, we've got that. We've got some OFAC activity with some designations of uh, some. Russian nationals associated with ransomware. We've got uh, we've got the designation of the Wagner Group as a transnational criminal group um, in the world of terrorism, or what I guess what the formerly formerly known as the Global War on Terrorism. Now it's what the the counterterrorism set of activities. Uh, I don't know. Still kind of looks like the Global War on Terrorism to me. We've got some Guantanamo developments. Majid Khan is actual is, developments is out into an unusual and I think so, somewhat unexpected location. Belize, Belize. I don't believe they've previously done a deal to send any Guantanamo detainees to Belize, but I could be wrong about that. I've, I, I will confess to not having. To, I've, I, I've, I've lost. There have been some island locations, Indeed. but uh, Palau. Palau was a big early taker. Okay, so we'll, we'll touch base with that. Anything else on the Guantanamo front? Uh, just also more um, mess and filings and litigation over, I think it's Hambali and his uh, medical issue. Not Hambali. Um, shoot. Um, I'm gonna, I'll run this down. But over uh, uh, serious medical issues for one of the detainees, oh, okay. um, like spinal cancer and, and sort of and things to do with that. Oh, and I wanted to note Ted Olson's op-ed yes. in the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, basically saying. About the plea deals. Like the, pointing out something we talk about a lot in the show, which is it, it's not working. The, the military commissions are not. It, it's possible, possible at this point, a couple of decades into it, to conclude that these aren't actually working. Just, just maybe. No, but I applaud that uh, position he he took there and some forthrightness about how it looked early on. And he speaks with a lot of credibility on this topic. Bellucci, not Hambali. Oh, um, Bellucci. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and then let's see, pivoting to other things. Maybe that's enough. Do you have anything else, any Supreme Court roundup for us? Uh, Supreme Court's been pretty quiet. Um, they're in the middle of their midwinter recess. So, you know. Well, after all those opinions they released yes, in the fall. All, they're, all, they're all one of those opinions. Exactly. Um, exactly. All right, wait, but, but they have, I mean, they, they do have, a, I mean, the Feb, the, uh, wait, is it the Feb? Yes, the February argument calendar is actually quite jam-packed with big cases, the Section 230 cases, yes. about which maybe our next episode will be. Yeah, maybe we'll deep dive that. Um, the student loan cases, the Title 42 case. So the February session is going to be quite the, you know, <laughs> they're quiet now, but they're not going to be by the end of the month. Steve, 
up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's a surveillance balloon. All right, let's talk balloon law. Must we? Um, I assume everyone listening is aware that there was a balloon. Uh, At least, a, well, but more than one balloon. Right, well, it turns out this is a whole thing, right? And this is no great shock. Uh, let's, we'll try to focus in on the legal aspects of this since I, I suppose inevitably, uh, especially from the, uh, the Beijing side, there have been some, some claims about the legal aspects of uh, <laughs> kind of blaming us for shooting down the... Uh, how dare you shoot yeah, just, down uh, a, an unidentified foreign object over your territory? By the way, um, I, I do believe that the F-22 shooting down the balloon was the highest altitude air-to-air kill in human history. In the really? history of, of uh, those sorts of activities. There's no, there's That's been no, not exactly a central record that people no really light, focus there's, on. There's been no like, anti-satellite? Um, I mean, there have been tests. Oh, but, they've never actually done it. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm conflating. I'm, I'm confusing my my, my science fiction. I, book yeah, I guess my, you might you might say <laughs> exactly. You might say that this is the closest step yet to space combat. But of course, the whole point of this is we're in the stratosphere, right. um, and that's part of what actually makes it sort of interesting as a legal matter. Um, if we were talking about something operating outside the atmosphere, then we'd be talking about satellite surveillance, and what could be more common uh, than satellites peering down and and transiting. Uh, over the territory of other countries. It happens all the time. This is this is a decades-old activity. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, if you decided to just willfully attempt to fly your surveillance plane, uh, as as we once did with the U-2 spycraft right. over over uh, the Soviet Union, if you, if you take the risk of putting an aircraft in a more conventional altitude, so more conventional craft, more conventional altitude, um, it is more likely to be recognized as an intrusion on sovereignty and, and likely to get your, your device shot down. So does it change anything to go up to, what was it, 60,000 feet and do it in the form of a balloon? You know, balloons are not entirely novel. Balloons have been used by one state to uh, uh, put something over other states before. Famous example that I know you're familiar with, Steve, in World War II. At one point, uh, Japan put some balloons into the jet stream angling towards uh, the Pacific Northwest yeah, yeah. with uh, with explosives on them. And uh-huh. actually, I think, killed six people ultimately yep, yep. with this uh like wildly indiscriminate, just sort of like, hey, let's just send some bombs into the. Should, it's not funny, but no, it's not. It, but but there is it. There's sort of a a farce element to this sort of thing, and I think that's part of what caught on here. You use the word balloon, but it, you know, it's not like they sat around like inflating something. You know, putting the balloon serum out, inflating it, and then sending it over the United States. In this case, um, this was a by all accounts a very sophisticated device. Um, relatively small, relatively difficult to detect on radar. It's not like everybody easily could always detect these things, but it was in fact detected and it was being monitored as it transited from over Alaska through Canada down in the United States and out the other side. Um, obviously, an, an intelligence collection capability, and we're told now that, that this is not the first time that this is part of a, of a larger set of operations. Um, as a, I think as an analytic matter, we should start by asking, what's the category of state activity here before we start asking the question about legal parameters on that? And the category of state activity seems very obviously to be intelligence collection. It's, it's, a, it's a variation of espionage. It's one way to go about collecting intelligence. Uh, it's a remote sensing-based way to do it. And it's a way that's relatively hard to detect and relatively 
as compared to an aircraft, relatively less intrusive in terms of the reaction it might generate if and when detected. Though as events unfolded this week, it clearly actually does in fact generate a lot of activity. So there's sort of the novelty aspect that, that triggers this. But if we categorize it as espionage, Steve, I think right off the bat, when people want to have a conversation about international law, it's immediately complicated. Because yes. of course, it's, it is uh, not at all obvious that there's something, oh, let me back up. Um, there's a big difference between the question of is it wrongful in that we should denounce them for having done it because we wouldn't do it and right. we think there's a norm that should be enforced that no one should do X. Is there a difference between that and the position that says we are going to do everything we can to defeat this? We're not going to claim it was like wrongful to do it. And we've, we've had this debate before, including in the U.S.-China relationship. Reminds me very much of China's oh-so-successful hack of the Office of Personnel Management, getting a huge amount of really, really useful information in the form of just about every person's uh, security background check files, right? So everybody who was involved or had been involved in government work basically as of a few years back in one way or another probably was impacted by this. And there was a great deal of debate about whether what China had done was inappropriate as opposed to unwelcome. Obviously should have been detected, defeated, prevented, et cetera, but that didn't necessarily make it wrong. At one point, I think then DNI, or maybe he was former DNI Clapper, said as to that operation, you know, hats off to them for what is a very remarkable operation. We don't like it, we want to defeat it, but we can't say that we don't do the same sort of thing or in the abstract, the same sort of thing. Uh, Steve, do you think, is this just another case of that where oh, this sucks. We hate it that they successfully placed balloons over us, but uh, we don't need to run around acting like it was wrongful to make the attempt, given various things that we do either at the satellite layer or uh, from within a country, including by hacking and by using human means to try to gather information on them. Could it be one of those cases where it's wrong, but everybody does it? Um, Not balloons specifically, but like the sort of well, you that's know. the tension I want to get at. Yeah. Should we be talking in the words of right and wrong as yeah. opposed to hostile and unwelcome versus yeah. we don't mind? I mean, clearly we – so I guess there's. I guess there are two There are two possible different grounds on which we might mind, right? So ground number one is minding just because they're doing it at all. And ground right. number two and is – And clearly, we clearly mind it in that right. sense. Mind number two is minding it because people are aware that they're doing it, right? Like it, it, seems, it seems like okay. – right? So – I, this, one of the hysterical reactions I saw um, on the internet was, you know, Biden doesn't care if the Chinese know where our nuclear missiles are located. I'm like, the balloon, like, that, that information, the Chinese intelligence does not need the stupid little balloon to figure out where our nuclear yeah. launch silos I'm are. I'm going to take the entire category of political commentary of, like, why didn't this... Right. But, 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 no, but, but I'm saying, it's like, like, the notion that that world powers engage in covert surveillance of each other, right? Whether through satellites, right, or other media, um, I think shouldn't surprise anybody, right? And, you know, we should, all countries should be able to take countermeasures to protect their secrets and their national defense. But um, there's a, it's, it's Potter Stewart about the First Amendment, right? Like the First Amendment is neither a Freedom of Information Act nor an Official Secrets Act. Right. Like, you know, the the media has the right to try to learn what they can and the government has the right to try to hide it. Yeah. So 
th- that gets to the point of when we shot down the the balloon, blew it to pieces over, I guess the the Atlantic coast somewhere outside the southeast, but within the twelve mile limit. Importantly. Yeah, uh, you're trying to claim like, hey, you know, how, how dare you? You, uh, I think the word indiscriminate was used. Like, well, it was, no, it's very, <laughs> it was it's very highly, discriminate. It's highly discriminate. Are you, are you, are you claiming wonder. it was a civilian object? Right. And I guess that, I think that probably was the nugget of what they were reaching for. There it was like, it's a weather balloon. This is a scientific vessel. We have no weapons. Um, the point is, it was an unauthorized transit over U.S. airspace, or was it? Now, there's a legal issue. Like, how high up does U.S. airspace go? Mm. Does and and so. I'm no expert on altitude law, which is a new coinage. Uh, I'm, not in, I'm not an expert on altitude Space law. Space law. Actually, you know, that might be a crazy name for a cannabis law course, altitude law. Good high. Um, yeah, well, it could be something like that. Um, but staying with the balloons. Aim high. My, my understanding is there. everyone agrees that there is obviously some amount of aerospace that is your sovereign controlled airspace, much as your land space uh, that extends upward. Uh, in the same in the same uh, vein, people agree that at some point when you're in, outside the atmosphere altogether, right. it's uh, it's a commons. Um, but my understanding is it is really unclear and indeterminate where, where things top out. And so when you have a U-2 flight, oh, by the way, apparently U-2s were used to uh, go up and including go above this thing to surveil it to figure yeah. out what it was doing, yeah. which I think is kind of meta, pretty interesting. Um, th- it's not clear exactly how well, far it What was the last go. time a U-2 flew a combat mission? Uh, v- Vietnam, yeah, well, I guess yeah. probably. I don't know. I don't know if we've yeah. used them in any of the more um, recent, you know, yeah, in our lifetime conflicts. I mean, satellites have done some of the work to exactly. You don't, but there, but there are certain things that can be done best if you get up close with camera and sensing pods, yep. and yep. that's what the U two is still for. Yep. Anyways, um, so we shot it down. I think it's perfectly obviously correct that we could do that. Yeah. Um, I guess their kind of the Chinese claim would be like, no, no, no. We basically had this is like the equivalent of you shooting down a satellite. Um, I don't think it's at all clear that that's the case. I think we're pretty obviously within our rights. Um, but I also think it would be wrong for us. It would be wrong for us to claim that that governments never should be able to do this. Right. Obviously, we wouldn't come out and say as a matter of our politics and public policy to come out and say, like, you know, turnabout's fair play. We'll try to do stuff like this. You may try to do stuff like that. We might do it through hacking or human agents or a U-2 spy plane back in the day. Um, we can't say that. But at the end of the day, to try to claim that it was legally wrongful at a sort of a deeper normative level, when it's in the category of espionage by our own account, we can't really maintain that position because, of of course, we, we maintain that we, you, can, you can engage in acts of espionage. Um, they're, they're covert and they're clandestine, and that's part of of why you categorize it as espionage right. as opposed to overt collection. Right. So I don't know. I think the whole thing is a little bit little bit of a tempest in a teapot, except <laughs> except for the politics, where it obviously is highly salient. That's right. But we don't need to get into that. Well, this is this is not a, uh, a U.S. China policy podcast. Yeah, well, you know, it's a national security law podcast, and increasingly over the years, we probably will have more and more of that. Um, How do you like to be the F-22 pilot, right? So, you know, on one hand, like, you got to, you know, now you have the record for the highest, you know, for the for the highest air-to-air, right, kill. Yeah. On the other hand, like, you get back to the base, you know, you're, you're, you're having a drink with your with your buddies. Oh, you shot down a balloon. <laughs> oh, I, you know that there was some trolling, <laughs> some popped balloons. Yeah, somebody came up behind them and popped a balloon. Yeah, um, yeah there's, you can kind of picture like, you know, Maverick, Top Gun 3. <laughs> <laughs> I got good tone. I can't get a lock on him. <laughs> 
switching the guns. <laughs> I think it was a missile, actually. It was, it was a Sidewinder. Yeah. Uh, an AIM-9X. Well, and it's funny because I think you can imagine someone being like, well, that's a waste of money. It's like, no, no, no. I think these things, if you shoot it, I, I did read one story about taking down a surveillance balloon in some setting where um, they shot it full of holes and it took a really long time for it to come down. Right. So, yeah, if you really want to take it down... Well, also, I mean, I, this is this is getting way into the weeds, but the, uh, as military hardware goes, the Sidewinder actually ends up being one of the more cost-efficient things we've ever developed. Yeah, that's true, actually. So it's not like they uh, did something that was right, like like the the space lasers, the the Jewish space lasers. Was that a was that a Marjorie Taylor Greene it was. Uh, claim? It yeah. was. Yeah. Well, sigh. <laughs> sigh. <laughs> Hashtag sigh. Hashtag sigh. Sigh emoji. Sad, sad emoji. Um, anyway, I think we've I think we've we've taken all the air out of that particular balloon. Oh. <laughs> Again, hashtag sigh. <laughs> sad emoji. Uh, shall we move on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. It's staying with great power competition. I, I guess we kind of already noted this, but there was a use of sanctions related authorities uh, for which we have both AIPA. And other more uh, Russia specific. The, the number of people who now email us or sent us notes online or whatever. We do get a lot of IEPA love. That, 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 that they can't now hear the name of the statute without hearing us. IEPA. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. Um, we've ruined it for everybody. So there, there's, a, there's a whole, I don't know if we've talked about transnational criminal organizations, sanctioned frameworks, but I think we can just say everything you've heard us say over the years about uh, the ability the delegated authority that Congress has given to the executive branch to impose, in the context of foreign affairs, to impose sanctions on foreign entities uh, based on a, a baseline finding of an international of an emergency and 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 a threat to U.S. national interest, uh, broadly speaking, uh, more or less can be brought to bear in order to sanction. Uh, international narcotics trafficking organizations or other forms of international criminal organizations. And what's interesting here is they've now used uh, such an authority to designate the Russian private military uh, organization, the Wagner Group, which is doing a big chunk of the fighting for the Russians in Ukraine, but is operating in Africa and elsewhere. And in many ways is sort of the in, in many ways, the most interesting aspect of Russian military power projection these days Um and also, I should add, uh, very disturbing because of the, the reporting that has emerged, no surprise, I guess, about the uh, atrocities and, and war crimes committed uh, and, and not only tolerated, but sort of celebrated to some extent um, by the Wagner Group. Anyways, they've been designated a transnational criminal organization. Um, there are officials associated with Wagner who already were themselves individually subject to sanctions, but I don't know that Wagner as such had previously been subjected to sanctions. And of course, this will help crimp their ability to, uh, you know, take their ill-gotten funding, if, if you consider it ill-gotten, which I would, and, um, and make any good use of it. But you know, most of that, I assume, is sitting in a, in a Moscow bank and no longer in places around the world. So anyways, there's that. And then I think just this morning, maybe yesterday, but the United States and the UK issued uh, a, a series of designations. So again, using sanctions authority, this time for people associated with the TrickBot malware and associated ransomware crews who operate out of Russia, you know, uh, Conti Group and others. Uh, a handful of indiv individuals, none of whom are in custody, um, but are now 
less able to travel than before and less able to move their money around than before. So you see the, the economic power of the United States and the UK being deployed jointly there, which is good. And I'll just note while we're on that topic that uh, recently DOJ and FBI came out with a really remarkable operation where they had, in ways we don't yet know how they did it, but they got a hold of the fact that the Hive ransomware crew, and, and Hive was sort of a successor to Conti, and these are these are basically Russia-based ransomware crews that develop ransomware tools and then make them available essentially to affiliates who could could be just about anybody who come along, pay the fee, and then take those ransomware tools and deploy them against targets uh, not in Russia, uh, but typically in the West, and make a huge amount of money in doing so. Um, Conti Group famously kind of fell apart or appeared to fall apart in the early days of the Russian invasion of U- or further invasion of Ukraine last year when they uh, took some public positions in favor of Russia, uh, which didn't go down very well with many of their Ukrainian colleagues and others. Now they've sort of reemerged or versions of them have reemerged as the, the Hive Collective. And it turns out one of the servers they were operating, at least one, was in Los Angeles. So with that geographic hook, FBI was able to get apparently a series of search warrants to monitor what was going on from within the back end of the enterprise. And over time, they what they were doing was for those people who had reported to FBI that they had been ransomware, um, FBI was able to actually get them the decryption keys. And in various ways, this ended up you know, helping, I think, many hundreds of victims. That was only a small piece of the overall victim footprint because obviously not everybody's a victim in the United States. And even those in the United States, many, if not most, don't actually alert the FBI to what's happening. But eventually the whole thing came out with a big public announcement very recently. Um, a very successful operation. It's good to see FBI and DOJ really leaning forward, forward aggressively uh, in those circumstances where the servers in the U.S. and one hopes and one suspects that where the servers are not in the U.S., at least in some locations, we hope that other parts of the U.S. government, other three-letter agencies are doing still more aggressive things to directly get in there in contexts where there's no search warrant needed. Um, at least we think that might be happening. All right, uh, Steve, that's probably enough great power competition. Let's let's go to the former global war on terrorism. Uh, so what's going down at Guantanamo? Um, a pretty remarkable release, I think. Um, yeah, Get, remind everybody about Majid Khan. So Majid Khan, um, there's all, I mean, there's so much to say about him. I, I, w- I would encourage folks to read Carol Rosenberg's interview with him, um, which was published in the Times, I think, yesterday. Um, oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, so um, Majid Khan was, I mean, he went to high school in Maryland. Like, he's one of, he was always a bit of a weird sort of outlier among Guantanamo detainees, but he was a, he was picked up in 2003, Bobby, the CIA, classified him as one of the high-value detainees, right? He's, you know, according to the Senate Intelligence Committee report, he's one of the detainees who is tortured. Um, He agrees to plead guilty um, and turns into basically a cooperating, you know, sort of a government cooperator. Um, But even in that context sort of spends, you know, much of the next, gosh, 17 years at Guantanamo, Right in different forms of social isolation, solitary confinement, etc. Um, he's finally released Bobby last week <laughs> um, under you know I, I don't know that we know all the terms, but basically the the story as reported by Carol is that the Belizean government was willing to take Khan if the United States bought him a house, a laptop, a phone, and a car. Um, 
right? So sort of, you know, the, the means of integrating into Belizean society. All right. Well, it's, it is a further whittling down of the rump population. Well, it's a, but about. it's also, it's a bit, I mean, he is the first of the high-value detainees. Um, who has been released from Guantanamo. Yeah. He's, he really is differently situated due to his cooperation mm-hmm. uh, compared to the others. But what's right? also crazy is, I mean, so I didn't realize this, he's 42. Like, he's younger than I am. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, we, we talk about how some of the remaining, what, 34 detainees, right, are, you know, in their 60s, 70s, like they're aging, they're getting, you know, uh, not con. Well, so this, again, leaves two groups. You've got the, the remainder of the, the sort of the military commission set of detainees, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi mm-hmm. bin al-Sheib, and others directly, directly involved in the 9-11 um, attacks. Obviously, I don't think there's the remotest chance any of them are being transferred out. But as uh, former Solicitor General Ted Olson, wh- whose uh, wife Barbara uh, was among the victims on the on the planes that day, and and really a, sort of a a major figure in uh, Bush administration, uh, the Bush administration back at the time, and in a significant figure I mean, more generally the, in American law at the time. Yeah, I mean, a re- it's, it's such a tragic story. Um, and Ted wrote an op-ed basically saying, you know, what what I think many of us have been saying for a long time, which is that. Whatever seemed to be the case at the time when the military commissions were selected as the tool to try to use to bring to justice the 9-11 attackers, it, it is beyond obvious at this point that this just was a mistake, that um, it, it is obviously not working. It's been decades, and all the victims, who, which very much includes Ted himself because of the loss yeah. of his beloved wife, and it, all the victims – deserved something that would work better than this. And that's not to say that on the front end, it was so foreseeable this was how it's going to go. That's something people can debate about. But what can't be debated is the the fact turns out to be that this doesn't work. Well, and what, what he was responding to, I, mean, I think it's worth putting this in context, this, this op-ed wasn't just out of the blue. What he was responding to was pretty loud pushback from congressional Republicans and not just the I think it was the fringe, although I don't think they're the fringe anymore, but like Mitch McConnell um, giving a very sort of angry statement on the floor of the Senate after the story about the latest plea negotiations, right, in the 9-11 case, among others. And I think, I mean, I don't think Ted says his response to that directly, but I think that's what was in the water. So I didn't I didn't see that. What was it that they were saying, that there should be no plea? That- yes. Were they saying because they don't want to take the death penalty off the table? No, they wish just that, that, not just that we don't. The, 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 the McConnell statement was pretty brief, but the basic gist was any plea deal will surely involve, you know, a transfer into the U.S. to serve part of the sentence. We don't want them. We don't want them in our backyard. We, you know, it's a, it's 2009 all over again, basically. Yeah, and, that, I, and, and that, I, that was an awfully long time ago. That seems like a weird sort of position to take to. To, to leave this in the limbo of but the perpetual is, pretrial proceedings. But even then, right, I mean, no. It, the point, I think, is that no one seriously, right, um, defends the commissions like, right, as such. As such, right? Yeah. And so so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a – let me this way. I, I think what Ted said is something that, you, that I've been saying for maybe a year or two longer than you, but that we've both been saying for a long time about the commissions. And the more that people like Ted Olson are publicly saying it – Maybe the more there's finally at least some kind of not consensus, yeah. but at least bipartisan support for the problem. I think is that 
Well, first of all, everybody who's a serious student of what's going on here understands like it, you, you can't argue with the fact that it's, it's been more than two decades, that there is no further response. There's nothing <laughs> yes. else to say. In fact, I'll just stop there. Yeah. Okay. Um, man, you're doing that mic drop thing on me again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it creates radio silence. It That's really awkward. does. I, I don't know what to do. So there's one more Gitmo story, though, before we leave, which is Amar al-Baluchi, um, who's one of the 34 guys still at Guantanamo. Um, so he has had a, a raft of serious medical issues. And the latest one of these is he apparently now has a spinal tumor, Bobby, um, that requires, according to his lawyers, pretty serious and sophisticated medical intervention that really can't be provided at Guantanamo. So there is now yet another um, habeas-related litigation fight underway in the D.C. District Court over whether the government has any obligation to move Bellucci for the purpose of providing him with, um, I, I think it's surgery, like spinal surgery at this point. Interesting. Um, um, so that's, you know, not necessarily, that, that's not necessarily a sort of, closing Guantanamo type story, but it's just a story about how there is still lots of stuff happening even I in wonder the individual if, cases. if there's a naval uh, surgical capacity on board a vessel that could solve that particular problem without requiring uh, my a, sense a from the sovereign plea, territory I mean, right, My sense from the plea is that the kind of surgery he needs is not the kind of surgery that you could perform in a typical surgical yeah, theater. It has to be a highly specialized. Well, Okay. Um, anything else to say on the counterterrorism front? I feel like there was some other topic, but it is escaping me. There, there have been the usual weekly series of uh, good results for the National Security Division in Islamic State support-related cases. Uh, there was a conviction in one case in which it was material support for the Islamic State where death resulted, which you, is a, a big additional kicker. Uh, you want to talk about the special ops raid in Somalia? Well, I'll just note, just this is your monthly check-in that we, <laughs> the global war on terrorism is, is a phrase we don't use anymore, but we absolutely still, of course, in some theaters of operations are engaging in the use of, of force, and for, and for good reason in that case. Um, this was a significant uh, military activity, and it just, it is amazing to me how little attention this sort of thing gets anymore. Yep. So there you go, your monthly reminder. Um, uh, well, I, 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 listen, I think it's a service to, to not – part of why it gets a little attention is because not enough people are talking about it. So right. even so just talking there you about go. it. Hey. Attention given. Attention. All right. Um, do we have a frivolity topic? We didn't pick one in advance, which always serves us well. Are we at that point? I think, I think we might be. All right. So listeners who can't stand it when we start rambling about – Things we've been watching, sports ball, whatnot. Um, now, now's the time to say thanks for listening. See you next week. Although, maybe. Bef- although before you go, um, Karen and I started a new show on. Oh gosh, what's it on? What is it? Uh, are you, on trying, Apple to, are TV. you trying to trick people into listening to the frivolity? Yes, um, on Apple TV called Shrinking um, with Jason Siegel, um, so and Harrison Ford. Um, That's an unexpected combination. It is. It is delightful. Yeah. Well, is so delightful. what's the premise? Um, so I don't, without giving too much away, Jason Siegel is a uh, professional psychologist. Ah, he's a um, shrink. Got it. He's a shrink. Shrinking. Yeah, there you go. Um, who is um, going through some stuff on the home front and is sort of, you know, trying to figure out how to grieve and how to sort of get, th- you know, how to grieve without destroying his relationships with his family and his friends and his practice. Um, Sounds kind of heavy. So it's a, this is this is what's remarkable about the show is that even though it has a very heavy sort of um, premise, right? The actual sort of interactions are incredibly sweet and funny and cute 
and it's just it's a is Harrison Ford his dad? So Harrison Ford is like the eminence grease of of the of the pra- of his practice. Um, so like his mentor, basically his professional okay. mentor, but yeah. not his dad. Okay. Um, but this, it's 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 yeah, it. I, I, you have to watch it. It's 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 hard to describe what it is. But Karen and I, who don't always see eye to eye on shows, right? It's, it, it it has it has struck the right chords for both of us. So shrinking. It, you're a professor, so you you engage in professoring. Is I that, guess is that I, what I, you do? Prof- teaching. I think is, is yeah, it's yeah. nice fun. <laughs> Um, let me see. Uh, the Last of Us is still going strong. All right. Should, what do you do? You recommend? Yes. Okay. Categorize this for me. Is it just? Is it just Walking Dead? Is it? No. I mean, it, it's, it's it's like a little bit of Walking Dead meets Station Eleven, right? Okay. But but there's other cool stuff going on. I mean, the episode, um, two the episode from two weeks ago is like one of the best hours of television I've ever seen. You're kidding me? No. Okay, all right. Um, you, you got me. I lo- look, I like a good uh, sort of post-apocalyptic, yeah. uh, dystopian type. I mean, yeah, is, that, that's, is that what the category is? Yes, it's a little closer to. It's a little. You know, I'm I'm less into the zombie side of that genre, so I I prefer the the sort of the you know the Station Eleven milieu to the to the. Um, uh, <laughs> to the large fungi <laughs> version of the of the, the milieu. But. By the way, Station Eleven, which if y'all haven't read it, is really well worth a read. I believe I believe that Emily St. John is from Austin. Is that right? I'm pretty sure that's right. Who knows? Maybe Emily. Are you a listener? Are you out there? Are you here <laughs> with us in uh, Austin? That's awesome. Anyways, it's definitely a great and a the great show's the show's really good too. I've never watched the show. Um, a lot of work to do. Um, you remind me. So you mentioned Last of Us, which, as I understand it, is uh, based. It's you know it's a spinoff of a video game. Yes. Uh, which is often a, a kind of a high risk genre. Yes. Right. Um, although you know, have you watched Halo? I think they turned that into. I haven't a TV watched show. Halo, but you know. Yeah. Well, so Saturday Night Live the other night did a uh, a commercial, a fake commercial for. Uh, have you seen this? Do you know where I'm going with this? I don't. All right. You got to check out the trailer for. HBO's Mario Kart, <laughs> and I'll just I'll just tell you I'll give you a few a few things. Pedro Pascal, uh-huh. um, kind of a framing that just this isn't. Is he Mario? I'm not. I'm just saying okay. there, there's a lot of a lot of familiar faces. <laughs> if you if you know your Mario Kart, it is it is you must watch this. I mean, the setup is basically like you know. <laughs> It's like, you know, if you enjoyed The Last of Us, HBO's taking another video game and turned it into a deep and weighty series, post-apocalyptic dystopia, where familiar video game characters take on HBO quality character, you know, dimensions. So there's a joke out there about how, you know, uh, uh, every show from now on is going to be Pedro Pascal leaving some kind of magical child, right? Yeah, exactly. um, This has some of that quality but to so, it. So the last, do you know who the, who the second star on The Last of Us is? I do not. I, know, I don't know who the first star is. Pedro Pascal. Oh, for real? Yeah, that's the. Yeah. Oh, oh, I thought, I thought <laughs> no, that's, that's what makes, the song was. I did not know no. that. That makes it even better. No, no but it, Pedro Pascal better. is like the lead. Like the it's it's Pedro Pascal's world, oh and we're God. just living in it. That's so great. Um, so his co-star is your. I think you're in my absolutely favorite minor supporting character from Game of Thrones. Oh right, right, right! It's uh, Lady Mormont. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. That's pretty. That's pretty strong. That's All right, it. you got me. I'll yeah. watch it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll watch this. Um, meanwhile, next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. What? Uh, yes, season three of Picard. I've got to watch season two between now and then. Oh, somebody. I know, I know, but we never talked about it. That's true. Well, um, also next Wednesday, the new HEB opens. Oh, is that right? Yes. Traffic apocalypse about to happen around that you location. Think? Oh yeah. 
I don't I, know. I, I just go by there on the day it opens, yeah. and it will be. Well, the day it opens, but like as a, that whole I, week on the reg, like I don't know. I think uh, I think it will be regularly disastrous about between three thirty and five o'clock. Well, who goes when, shopping with between three thirty and five o'clock? Lots of uh, <laughs> Steve, lots of people, and that's when both O'Henry and Austin High are letting out, which so. is why I will never go over there. But like at like at like nine thirty on Sunday, there's a. So the point is. Uh, this, is, this, is this, when, route, this is when Jews go grocery shopping, when, this, when this Christians will, are in church. This will <laughs> It's true that I am not usually found in a in a uh, shopping situation around ten thirty on Sundays. That's what I'm saying. So um for those who are not Austin traffic aficionados, to get out of downtown and head towards Westlake, one of the major ways out is to go down Lake Austin Boulevard. You have to get past Austin High and, and one of the main tr- access points for the hike and bike trail. Then you got to go right by the middle school, and um, then there's the Red Bud Trail to get across. Well, now there's a brand new HEB that's up, like up huge, right fancy, in the middle of big, it. big, monstrous, yeah. it, it's not like the It's not like the road's got any wider there. No. It is going to be a long Interesting. Camp. All right, yep. so Bobby predicts traffic, and I predict convenient access to great grocery store. I think we're both right. Indeed. Um, all right, well, so gosh, I guess unless we lose power again... Yeah, we should be back next week. Um, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steven Score Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. <sighs> Watch out for the balloons. Happy Valentine's Day. Stay safe <laughs> out there. Avoid avoid falling balloons. Yeah, that's right. Um, bye, y'all. Adios.